even the most basic, I think just, just simple creativity, innovation, being an entrepreneur, being a coach, being a, a manager, all of these things really depend on having some ability to notice things and pay attention to that other people overlooked. And if you're constantly just looking in the same direction that everyone else is looking in, because the culture is telling you to look that way, you are never going to see anything original or notice anything original. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more creativity and meaning in your daily work through the simple act of slowing down. Today, our subject is looking slowly. And my guest is journalist Rob Walker, whose work I have been following now for over a decade. Rob is a cultural anthropologist of sorts and really just a keen, all-around observer of humans who has written two long-running columns for The New York Times. The first was Consumed in the early aughts, which analyzed the way we expressed our identity through the acquisition of stuff. And then later, Workologist, an advice column for the modern workplace. Most recently, Rob published a lovely little book called The Art of Noticing, which collects a series of exercises designed to help you drag your attention away from your phone and re-engage with the world around you through all five senses. Now, it's easy, I think, when you hear the word noticing to dismiss it. It sounds like small potatoes, a luxury for those of us with time to spare, like stopping to smell the roses or picking up a shiny penny on the ground. But it's actually so much more. In this conversation, Rob and I talk about noticing as the stepping stone to meeting fascinating new people, to having deeper, more meaningful conversations, and last but certainly not least, to making powerful, creative work. Because if all you're noticing are the same things that everyone else is noticing, how can you possibly have anything original to say? We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. You have a newsletter which, like your book, is called The Art of Noticing, and one of the regular features is an icebreaker question. Since you seem to be a connoisseur of sorts, I thought I would start by asking you, what your favorite icebreaker question is. <laughs> it's interesting. I don't know that I am a connoisseur. This is something that came about in a sort of roundabout way, and I wasn't expecting it to be so uh, popular with <laughs> newsletter readers, but clearly there's a craving for these things. Of the ones we've published so far, I think maybe the most interesting one, because all of these questions don't come from me. I ask readers, what's your favorite icebreaker? And it's sort of snowballed. And uh, my favorite one so far has been the person who, uh, asks what three con if you if you were limited to using only three condiments for the rest of your life what would they be and so this among other things leads to this existential discussion of whether guacamole is a condiment and people get very heated about this anyway it's sort of ridiculous but I I I got interested in icebreakers I guess in general because I teach a little bit and you know when you meet seventeen people the first night and you want to kind of get a sense of them you can do one of two things. You can ask everyone the same question. Why are you here? You know, or whatever. Um, but I try to ask everyone a different question. So I do have a constant need for more questions like this. Um, 
my other secret answer to this question is that I have one coming up that is really my favorite, but I can't reveal it right now. So I just have to subscribe. <laughs> Top secret. I think it's going to be, con- I actually think it's going to be controversial. I think it might, it's going to be an interesting moment in the history of the, this icebreaker right. project. Icebreaker cliffhanger. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, so what makes a good icebreaker? Do you think I ran a conference for a number of years and one of the pieces of feedback we would always get from attendees, like no matter what we did was I want to meet more people, mm-hmm. but it's quite difficult to get people to meet other people, even when you're trying to really facilitate it. And I've encountered lots of icebreaker questions that sound good objectively, but Mm -hmm. in actuality, they're too personal or they're too Mm -hmm. deep or, Mm -hmm. you know, it takes too long to think of an answer. And I I feel like a good one is like when you can respond quickly without (laughs) saying anything embarrassing, but it also provides an answer that's sort of telling in a way. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think that uh, I think range of possible responses is one of the good uh, markers of these things, because if you can give someone something that they have the option to go personal and deep if they want, but that gives them an out, I think it's really tough to ask people things that that sort of require or that, that feel like it's a letdown if you say something flippant, like if you if you if you ask someone, you know, like, who, who's the person who most influenced you in your life, that's, that could be, you know, that could work, but maybe someone would feel like, well, I don't want to just say my mom, I don't want to, you know, uh, you, you want to ask things that are kind of open ended. And I'm a big fan of things that uh, are funny. So that's why I think I like the condiment one, because it's so silly. Uh, yeah, that one's great. I'm going to start using it. Yeah. And it's a start, you know, that's the thing that I think people have to, you want to just give someone an opportunity to say something and to signal that you're listening, which, you know, is this, it's, although the icebreakers are not part of this book, this idea of connecting with others is definitely part of this book. Absolutely. Do you think that there are good icebreaker activities, like things that you, you know, could do on a first date or when meeting a new friend? Uh, well, I mean, you know, always you want to go into those situations with as many, you know, giving the other person as much opportunity as possible. Well, I'll put it this way to, to, to signal to the other person that you're listening, right? So you want to ask things that you're interested in the answers to. This is a little different than first date or first meeting with one person. But one of the things that I when I was researching the book, someone else's idea that I came across that is a sort of group conversation thing that I like a lot is Amy Krauss Rosenthal uh, has this idea of the group, sort of the group autobiography. So like it's a group of five people. This I think would work well with colleagues, for example. And you just decide what are the, what are the things that we have in common? Like, are we all, were we all born in America? Do we all like football? Do we all like pizza? And you know, you're going to eliminate some things aren't going to work. And then you, you stop it maybe when you get 10 things and then that's your group biography. And it's kind of fun. And the whole point is that you have to ask each other a lot of questions and kind of get to know each other in a kind of low key way. Yeah, I like that. Well, as you just said, in a way, the new book, The Art of Noticing seems like it's full of these kind of icebreaker activities, but it's more like icebreakers for being present in the world. So I'm curious, why did you write this book? Like, why do you think we need it at this particular moment in time? Well, so I probably don't have to convince you, and I don't want to waste anyone's time with the idea of convincing you that we live in this moment where there's a lot of competition for our attention. It's a time of distraction and so on, right? Does that sound kind of familiar? Like you've heard that maybe? Um, a heavy theme in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you know about that. 
So that was a big part of what was on my mind. Um, and the truth is the way it came about is that there was a long period where I was interested in that as a subject and, you know, what can we do about it? And I had this vision for a book that was, you know, 290 pages of laying out the problem and then a 10 page thing at the end of like, and here's some fun stuff you can do to, you know, counteract it. And I kind of spent two years not doing any work on that book at all and realized that I didn't want to write it. And what I was really interested in was those last 10 pages and that should be the whole book. <laughs> so now it's 10 pages at the birth, five pages at the beginning saying, Hey, you know, there's this problem with attention and you know, how do you rebuild your attention muscles? How do you just build time into your week? Like what if you could just spend an hour a week just focusing on whatever is most important to you? And the first thing people will say is like, well, I don't have an extra hour a week, but you do have these little bits of time here and there. And uh, I felt that if you could come up with these exercises, some of which relate to my teaching uh, or grew out of design class, uh, teaching design students, um, if you could build this list of activities that felt more like games or provocations or small things that you could do at odd times, then that might be more realistic as a um, strategy than these uh, things that you hear about, well, just take a month off from answering email or these, these kind of things, which I think are just completely unrealistic for, for most of us. Um, more power to you if you can actually do a month-long digital detox, but it's tough for a lot of people. So. Right. Well, this is so interesting. We're kind of backing into what I wanted to ask you for my next question, but I'm still going to ask because I want to get a little bit more clarity about it. And I was curious, why did you choose to frame the book as a series of activities as opposed to say meditations? Because so much of the ethos of the book, as I just mentioned, seems to be about convincing people to sort of be more present yeah. in the world. But in framing these observations as activities, it still gives you sort of the sense of like, doing of taking action rather than just simply being so yeah. I'm curious how you think about that tension no i think it's kind of crucial to give yourself that sense of doing something and uh part of the way that i think about this is actually not blaming technology and and kind of thinking more about human nature because i think a lot of the things that we blame on technology have more to do with our own psychology our own fear of missing out, as they say, the FOMO thing, um, and just being reactive to the world. So I think step one is, instead of being reactive, be active, be proactive, do something. Um, and I had a personal story that relates to, you know, how this whole project came about. It's very straightforward. I was going to San Francisco. This is actually the first exercise in the book, and it's it's sort of the one object scavenger hunt. I was going to, on a business trip to San Francisco, uh, which is a city I'd been to, you know, five or six times. So enough that I was no longer, you know, that, that sort of gobsmacked state of visiting a new place. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and I was going to be there for work and I didn't have a lot of time to do proper sightseeing, like go to museums or this kind of thing. Um, but I wanted to give myself some way of experiencing that city that introduced some novelty into it. So I was engaged as I moved around. Um, so I had an assignment to look out for one thing wherever I went. And my only parameter was it had to be something that no one wanted me to look at. 
this is important because I think we spend a lot of time looking at things that people want us to look at, right? Whether it's your friend's status update or whether it's a mass marketing campaign delivered through a screen that's somehow on a street. Mm. Um, so I chose security cameras everywhere I went. I've looked for security cameras and it was a really interesting experience and it was active. I was doing something. It became a game and it was really changing the way I looked. I was looking up. I was looking in different places. I was having opinions about, I was taking pictures. I was, uh, having opinions about the different styles of security cameras and where they are and what that says about the kind of place that I'm in and the neighborhood and so on and so forth. And it was really fun. And, um, and, uh, it affected the way that it still sticks with me now. I sort of see them wherever I go. And, um, I always have to tell this story that at the end of that trip, I got to the San Francisco airport and called my wife to tell her that the flight was on time and all that. And she knew I was taking pictures of security cameras and I said, by the way, the security camera situation at the airport is totally fascinating. These huge embankments of cameras. She said, please don't walk around the airport taking pictures of security cameras. <laughs> that was good advice. Anyway, but that the, the takeaway from that is that I felt like there was something about this. There was something about it being an activity and being something that I could carry with me into the world, like a control on my own. It felt like a game and that felt productive and surprising, and that I felt like was reclaiming control over my own instincts. Because a lot of our sort of fear of missing out instincts are very human, but one of the things that makes humans unusual in the kingdom of animals is our ability to override our instincts and actually control our goals and to recognize um, uh, the difference between uh, paying attention to what other people want us to pay attention to and paying attention to what matters to us, not just now, but going forward. When you just use an interesting word, when you were talking about that activity, you said productive. And I think that I do agree with you that I think it's really unconstructive to sort of blame, you know, technology for, you know, where we're putting our attention and many, many of our problems. But I do think that it has contributed to and probably just capitalism in general, this feeling that we should always be being productive. Mm. And in the book, you write about the artist Robert Irwin. Mm -hmm. And there's one particular sentence that I really loved. You say, quote, he once spent eight months in Spain producing nothing, end quote. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in this kind of busyness-driven culture that we live in now, this productivity-driven culture, this kind of languishing sounds almost unimaginable or even unforgivable. Yeah. How do you think about that shift? Yeah, it's, I think it's, I'm very sympathetic. I have mixed feelings about it because I have, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that of course we all want to be productive, right? We all want to make the most, but, but at some point that kind of cult of productivity of maximizing being productive every minute and squeezing the most out of everything and having some kind of measurable result um, from every moment in your day Technology does play to that uh, and gives you these senses of like, oh, well, at least I at least I caught up on my Instagram. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I got something done today. I, I, I liked 30 things on Instagram um, and that doesn't give us room. It, it crowds out room for true surprise and true serendipity and true, um, you know, what Irwin was doing on those eight months of not producing anything was actually really productive in the sense that he was spending time thinking about the light, thinking about the work that he wanted to do, thinking about, you know, whether what he was doing was living up to his aspirations, other ways of approaching the same problems he'd always dealt with before. 
but that's hard for us. We don't want to give ourselves permission to give ourselves time to do things that don't have an obvious payout, um, but that could lead to something uh, surprising later. And that so what seems totally unproductive now could lead to uh, an unexpected payoff over time, which makes it roundabout way, if it makes you feel better, productive. Right. Well, and I think that's one of the challenges now is seeing the long game, especially as you're saying in the creative process. And that was probably, I mean, what year was that probably in? Like, I don't think Robert Irwin was fending off, you know, his, managing right, his yeah. email like inbox. In 60s, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, every generation feels like, like you can go back a hundred and yeah. almost 50 years and every generation feels like they've dealt. And every generation is probably correct that they're dealing with unprecedented levels of incursion on their on their time and on their mental energy and on their attention, you know. So I'm sure it, in his defense, it probably felt harder than it would be to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we can follow this thread a little bit deeper in terms of kind of this sea change that's happening. One of the stories that you tell in the book is about Amy Susskind's weekly list. Mm -hmm. She's a writer and an activist. And since Trump's inauguration in 2017, she's been making a weekly list of how he's subtly shifting the norms of what's acceptable in government. And I wasn't aware of it before you pointed it out. And I looked it up and just a single week's list is incredibly shocking. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious what you think has subtly changed over, say, the past 10 years about the human experience. You talk about this sort of ambient white noise that we yeah. live with now in the book. It's a great question. And I wish that I could answer it by saying, oh, luckily, I've been keeping these lists for 10 years, so I can tell you some hard facts. But, you know, I can't. And I wish... You know, when I think about that, I do think about all the time, as I think many of us do who are old enough to have memories that go back <laughs> 10 years. Um, you know, you think about, as an example, my wife and I talk about this all the time, when I go to walk the dog in the morning to make sure I have my phone with me. And if I didn't bring my, if I don't bring my phone, I get really tense, which is ridiculous. 10 years ago, you know, this idea that like, well, and you can think of all the reasons like, what if I, what if the dog gets hurt and I need to call her? Or what if there's a stray dog that I need to rescue? Or what if, you know, who knows? Um, and all of these things, all of those possibilities as a thing that could happen in the world existed 10 years ago. There just wasn't necessarily such an easy way for you to do anything about it. So I think things like that, you know, to your earlier point about the difference between our time and Robert Irwin's is that like gradually, incrementally, these things change and they become you know, not just normal, but almost like rules for how we have to live. It just feels mandatory. It feels almost irresponsible. Like, what were you doing walking your dog without your cell phone? Yeah, I do that all the time. I leave the, the house without my phone and my wallet, which is, you know, seems normal to me, but is increasingly uh, yeah. <laughs> unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I would say, you know, not surprisingly, based on the title of this podcast, that so much of that change has also created this sort of feeling of speediness and hurry and and really that sense that you don't have enough time. Mm -hmm. And you write about the idea of time famine in the book, like literally being hungry for time because you don't have enough of it. And you talk about some research around that, which I've read, and it's pretty fascinating about how being generous with your time actually makes you feel like you have more of it. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the essence of it. It's, it's, I mean, I guess it comes to like, don't make a time donation. And, uh, 
I think that the theory is that uh, if you make a time donation, meaning like, say, volunteer to help your neighbor clean their garage or something like that or something more noble, but something where you're getting a task done in a finite amount of time and you can take this satisfaction away from it. It's this it's this idea of completion um, that uh, sort of transcends the amount of time. <laughs> like it's, it pays off in a way that feels bigger than the amount of time that you actually gave away. And it shifts your relationship to where you don't feel like you're in that constant, like, well, I gave some time away. I got something done. I got it done for someone else and I feel good about it. And it becomes this kind of tiny victory um, in our in our nonstop because you couldn't be more right that one of the things that's changed is this constant sense that um, time is going faster and you've got to you've got to move faster and you've got to get more done right away. Yeah, well, and that being generous with your time, right? It hinges on this idea of well, the idea is that it makes you feel a sense of the technical term being right self efficacy, right? Which is, Mm -hmm. as you were saying, that feeling of like having gotten something done. But, you know, it was was funny. I was kind of thinking about this and it's like, so one example of taking an action that wouldn't feel, you know, efficacious might be retweeting something about how we should be outraged about a new law that the government has passed. You know, while ostensibly you're sort of doing something with that action, you don't really feel the sense of having actually affected any type of actual change, small or large, right? Whereas, let's say like an alternate example, going door to door and registering people to vote, for example, even if it doesn't like immediately help back, you know, roll back that law that you're worried about, it's something that's probably going to feel very efficacious, you know, very like give you the sense of completion because you get to see the outcome. And so I think it was kind of interesting to me, like this idea that, you know, this speediness that we were just talking about makes us feel really impatient with small acts like that, you know, going door to door and doing voter registration, for instance, because they feel really small and they feel really time consuming. But exactly those types of activities are sort of the things that are the most likely to make us feel better in a way, to make us feel like we have more time. Yeah, it's interesting because there's kind of probably some sort of continuum there because I do think that people, when they retweet something, I do think a lot of people do get some short-term sense of feeling like mm-hmm. they just did something, but it's in the longer term, like the, it's an empty calorie situation, you know, where it's like that doesn't last and everyone else is retweeting the opposite of what you're saying or whatever, right? That it's just like, well, that didn't do any good at all, but it takes so little investment. It's kind of the equivalent of whatever choking down a Snickers bar instead of, <laughs> instead of taking the time to make a decent meal, right? Because if you're like, I don't have time to make a decent meal, and what difference does it make? And this is just as good. And uh, there's so much cultural pressure to, to, to keep it moving that, yeah, things like going door to door, it, it feels like, geez, this big time expenditure, and what do I really see out of it? Whereas clicking something on Twitter is very minimal effort, kind of feels okay for a minute. And then later you like the Snickers bar, you kind of regret that you got your calories that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, we're stuck in this, um, speed loop and you actually use a really, an example that I love in the book of thinking about speed. You write about this tour guy by the name of <laughs> Timothy Levitt. Yeah. Um, and, and his nickname two, is speed. <laughs> right. <laughs> and these two opposing concepts of how we move through the world, cruising versus 
commuting. Could you describe the difference between these sort of two modalities? I really love that idea. Yeah, the essence of it. And so he's a tour guide who's a very um, unusual uh, <laughs> tour guide, to say the least. Uh, and his uh, he has an entire worldview about how to move through the world. And yeah, so the commuter, I mean, I guess the way he specifically puts it is commuting is traveling along with the assumption that every godforsaken human being currently on this planet is in my way, you know, which is this sort of relates to what you're talking about with it. It's, it's all about time and the time suck that every single, and we've all had this feeling, right. Of everybody's in my way. And if everyone would just step aside, but his cruising idea also a verb, as he puts it, is the immediate appreciation of the beauty immediately around you in your immediacy. So, you know, he's, uh, telling you to stop thinking about time beyond this second and just be in the moment uh, and accept that there are people in your way and stop thinking of them as obstacles and start thinking of them as opportunities. Uh, the particular item that is in the book is his recommendation to connoisseur. He uses connoisseur as a verb, connoisseur something awful. And he talks about uh, honks, horn honking in Manhattan, which if you ever spent any time in Manhattan, you know that the, when people blare their horns, it's not pleasant. But he says, well, just embrace that and sort of learn to tell the difference. What's is that? A, you know, is that a truck horn or is that a car horn? Are they leaning on it long? Are they doing it short? Are they trying to get someone immediately out of their way? Or is it just one of those things where it's gridlock and people do do this in New York all the time, just leaning on their horn as a pure sort of barbaric yawp of existence? Um, that's a different kind of, <laughs> that's a different kind of honk. Uh, so he's talking about, uh, we all get stuck in moments that we don't want to be in. You can think of it as a reason to be unhappy and grind your teeth, or you can try to make the most of it. And he makes the most charismatic case for making the most of it that I think I've ever heard. Yeah. It's a very sort of Buddhist perspective. A lot of stuff in this book. It, there's no Buddhism in the book, but I know that, um, there's a lot of this that is directly connected. These are kind of entryway drugs to, or what do they call it? A gateway, a gateway mm -hmm. drug to uh, mindfulness and meditation ideas. Because I think a lot of people find those ideas kind of stressful and like I'm doing it wrong. And I, you know, I'm not, my head's not clear, but these are very much, uh, very much tied to ways of being in the moment, being accepting of what's happening around you instead of trying to escape what's happening around you. And it's not a trivial thing. I mean, there are these, Big companies, Google and Goldman Sachs, are introducing mindfulness programs because they, it's a real issue beyond just you know how you spend your weekend, but like how you get your job done uh, requires often finding ways to maintain focus and screen out this distraction and really be present with whatever problem it is you're trying to solve. So, um, yeah, so this uh, these are ways of trying to beyond just be fun and have a way to get through your day. Um, they're trying to teach a little bit of a deeper lesson about how to be. Very much so. Well, one of the things that I enjoyed so much about that Levitch distinction is, right, he's not just talking, it's cruising versus commuting, but he's not just talking about commuting to work. He's talking about, as you right. were saying, this is kind of like notion that so many of us move through the world with that it's all that it's all about you and it's all about you getting from point A to point B as quickly 
as possible. So he's very much sort of pushing back on that just kind of modality, even beyond, you know, when you're on the subway or when you're in a car. Yeah, no, he even makes the he even makes the point in the context of people taking his tours and that many of them seem far more stressed out, you know, and like on the job than he is because they are there to get them, you know, to drain the most, squeeze the most possible payoff out of this hour and a half tour. And so they have their goal, like, what am I going to get out of this? What's my payoff? And then here's this guy talking about listening to honking and they become stressed out (laughs) because they're commuting through a tour and he's cruising through leading a tour. We have to take a quick pause now, but stay with me. After the break, Rob and I talk about why taking back control of your attention and noticing in particular is essential to making original creative work. This episode is brought to you by Hover. Got a killer idea? I think we all know what step number one is these days. Go see if the domain name is available, and assuming it is, get that URL on lock. Finding the domain name that matches your passion is basically the first step in building your brand. Because if your brand doesn't have a website, let's be honest, it's not really a thing. Fortunately, Hover makes being the master of your domain easy. They have a mind-boggling amount of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, plus a bunch of new favorites, like .design for graphic types, or .how for the eternal questioner, or .love for the open-hearted entrepreneur. But one of the best features of Hover is that everything is included, so they're not always trying to upsell you. Whois Privacy is included with every domain for free, and nifty integrations like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by Harvest. Research has shown that most people's productivity falls off a cliff after about 50 hours a week, which means the getting things done isn't about the quantity of hours you put in. It's about the quality of those hours. But how do you know that the time you're putting in is really creating value? Enter Harvest, a simple and intuitive time tracking tool that shines a light on your business's time so you can make intelligent decisions about where you spend it. It lets you know how your projects are performing, which ones are creating value, and which ones are costing you money. And all of that data helps you get smarter about predicting the future. Harvest gives you a clear sense of how much time you're spending on projects so that you can be sure you're charging the right amount. What's more, by looking back at that historical data, you'll be able to accurately estimate when you'll get future projects done and how much they will cost. Plus, Harvest can add up your time and automatically invoice your clients. And I know you hate invoicing. So head on over to getharvest.com slash hurry slowly today to start a free 30-day trial and get 50% off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly. 
One of my other favorite moments in the book is a line from the poet Marie Howe, who says, quote, it hurts to be present, end quote. And that seems to relate to what we were just talking about, this idea that you speed through things, in a sense, in order not to be present. What do you think Howe is talking about when she says it hurts to be present? Well, there's this discussion in the book of... Um an exercise of, of making metaphor-free observations, which sounds a little esoteric, but it comes from creative writing, poetry classes. Uh, and it's uh, this uh, uh, tendency that, that uh, younger people have to, when it's describe something, just write these simple exercises of describing a cup or a, a, an action on the street or something, that they will tend to as begin by using metaphors. Um, and it's uh, kind of a distancing act. And instead of saying uh, the cup is round, you want to say the cup is the shape of you know the moon or something like that. And that seems more poetic, but it's more of a distancing device. And what she's, what Howe I think is trying to get at is uh, to be truly present requires punching through these kind of distancing techniques that we use as a matter of uh, as a matter of course. Um, and be really in touch with what's actually there. And once you can punch through that, um, you kind of, in her view, uh, never go back. Uh, and that's what she means by it hurts to be present. You have to learn to, um, you have to work at it. You have to work at being in the room with the things that you're with. When, how do you think that plays out in a larger context? Because so much of the book seems to be, you know, we talked about icebreakers at the beginning and, you know, you seem very interested in helping people be more present in the world and also help them, you know, helping them engage with other people. And the uh, transition that was described in that particular exercise was moving from interpretation to engagement. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were, you were talking about using a metaphor, but it could be similarly, I would think like if I was talking to someone or I was listening to someone and they were telling me about their experience that then, you know, maybe in that conversation, my response might be, oh, well, that's, you know, like my experience and then explaining my experience. Mm -hmm. But that is right. Sort of a way of not being engaged and not recognizing their experience as something different and separate and unique from my own in a sense. No. Yeah. And I think, I mean, look, the most, you know, I was trying to sort of not blame everything on technology earlier, but let's face it, this is an area where if you want to see people literally ex escaping the present and, and, and literally disengaging, you do see it all the time with people looking into a screen that they're holding in their hands and being in another world uh, than the one that they're actually in. And I understand why sometimes that's, somewhere between the necessary and the maybe even useful thing to do. Um, but it is a form of disengagement and it becomes a habit and it becomes a, a more extreme variation of what you're talking about, a human nature thing, which is in a conversation, instead of really listening to what the other person has to say, you're essentially waiting, like you get a cue at some point, they say something about, I don't know, the Golden State Warriors. And so you're like, well, I have something to say about the Golden State Warriors. So then you're just waiting for their mouth to stop moving <laughs> so that you can make your observation about the Golden State Warriors. And this is addressed in the, in the book in trying to have better, you, you know, the most important thing you can do 
if you're having trying to have a conversation or there are a number of suggestions about interviewing an elder and interviewing a friend or interviewing even an enemy is to uh, allow that other person to fill this conversational space and really honor that. And it makes a huge difference if someone really believes that they're, li- that, that they're being listened to, the quality of what, that they're, what they're going to say to you. And that's completely about engagement and about what you're talking about. The flip side of what you're talking about is, um, you know, that kind of almost escape of, uh, of just not being in the moment at all or being in the moment only for yourself and seeing the other person as kind of an obstacle between you and what you want to express. Yeah, well, maybe expanding on that idea, you have a really beautiful example in the book um, talking about silence and some Trappist monks that you visited with. Well, I didn't visit with them, I should clarify. (laughs) I quote from an interview that was actually conducted by email with some Trappist monks. And uh, what it came down to is I think that there's a misunderstanding, this idea that monks never speak. And in fact, what this monk explained is that, no, it's we only speak when it's necessary. So my uh, suggested exercise out of this in the Art of Noticing piece that's about it um, was to try to spend a day speaking only the words that are purely necessary, which makes you listen harder and makes you more attentive to and accepting of what's happening around you and figuring out what do I need to say? Well, how can I say this as efficiently as possible? Um, I don't think that you need to do it for the rest of your life, but it's uh, uh, an eye opener, as it were, um, to do it for a day. Yeah, well, I just got I got out I got out your book so I could look at this one line. Um, one of the monks says to you, "Is silence beneficial for all people? I would say the cultivation of silence is indispensable to being human." Yeah. And there's not a lot of cultural payoff to being silent these days, you know. And uh, I have a version of also in, elsewhere in the book of the digital silence of, you know, if you're the kind of person who tweets 90 times a day, try cutting it to 10, you know, or uh, uh, just spend more time, spend less time worrying about getting your point of view out there every second and more time trying to absorb what others are saying. There's not a lot of cultural payoff to being silent. That is a great <laughs> sentence. <laughs> so true. I'm curious. I have been following your work for you know many, many, many years. I remember reading your column in the New York Times um, for a long time, which was focused on consumerism. You, I think, wrapped up that column in about 2011. So why the shift from kind of that um, particular focus, consumerism, to um, this other focus, which, you know, we could call sort of, I guess, more attention, noticing, or even, you know, kind of uh, under the radar mindfulness, as you were saying? It's an interesting question. Uh, The consumed columns, what that was called. And then a book that I did around that time called buying in, they were about consumer culture and they were about, they were partly about how we were being marketed to. And in a sense, they were about this thing that was coming up on the horizon, the attention economy. Um, I wasn't using that term, but I was certainly very interested in this idea that, um, every technological advancement seemed to carry with it some new form of, um, people trying to sell us things. 
and then I guess that what happened next was, you know, the evolution of social media, which was partly about commercial culture, but also partly about, I would say, about everyday, everyday people kind of adopting the mode of communication of brands, uh, which is a little dispiriting. <laughs> so that's what led to, you know, as I say, there was this moment where I thought maybe that was the subject of a book about that evolution. And I guess maybe just because I've gotten, I'm just at a different time in my life, I was less interested in laying out a problem and more interested in saying, what can I offer people that might be helpful? And so less, less, uh, the war, there was a time when the project was called the war against seeing. So it sort of evolved from that to the art of noticing. And you can sort of see the shift in emphasis there of like, instead of complaining, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of offer some, some, some solace. Right. Yeah. I always love to hear the evolution of people's book titles. And I think there, there is a strong through line. Actually, I was, what you were saying was making me recall, I did an interview with um, this Slovenian philosopher, uh, Renata Seletzel, who wrote a book called The Tyranny of Choice, Mm -hmm. you may be familiar with. And in that book, she talks about kind of the ultimate end of capitalism, essentially being when we start consuming ourselves. And I think that is actually starting to happen on one, on sort of a metaphysical level in that, you know, we literally are consuming other people on social media, right? Sort of consuming their thoughts and their ideas and consuming our own thoughts and ideas constantly. And then on a more physical level in the sense that, you know, people are really overtaxed and kind of burning out and, and over busy at this moment. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there are a number of ways to respond to that quickly. I would say, you know, she's definitely onto something and I think it is kind of happening. It is ironic that at the time I was doing some of the buying in work and the consumed work, that there was a conventional wisdom that the marketing, that marketing was dying, that it was being stomped out by the newly empowered consumer. I never thought that made any sense. (laughs) And I think that, you know, all you have to do today is read yet another story about an Instagram influencer to see how that um, all turned out. <laughs> but uh, but on a more, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm just, again, I'm, I'm trying not to be just complaining about a problem, but there are reasons why um, it's worth trying to break out of the cycle that you're talking about and that she's talking about and that I'm talking about. And it's that, you, you really can't, I mean, just even the most basic, I think just, just simple creativity, innovation, being an entrepreneur, uh, being a coach, being a, a manager, all of these things really depend on having some ability to notice things and pay attention to that other people overlooked. And if you're constantly just looking in the same direction that everyone else is looking in, because the culture is telling you to look that way, you are never going to see anything original or notice anything original, which is really counterproductive. And again, not to get into productivity, but it's really a problem. You know, you're really never going to get anywhere. Um, and that's kind of became the motivation for 
pushing in this direction and saying like this isn't just something that it's not just about well you'll feel better i think you will feel better but i think it's also kind of vital i think that if you don't do this i tell students that if you don't if you're not attending to things that other people aren't attending to then you have no original point of view you can't stand out so it's really important absolutely and in one of the final essays in the book you talk about caretaking as the ultimate way of concentrating your attention yeah which is really noticing something, right? Or some one. And to kind of circle back to what we were just touching on, I mean, what do you think it means that we as a culture are so time-pressed now that we have trouble finding time to literally take care of ourselves, much less those around us? Yeah, it's it's a great point. And it's, I mean, God, we could talk for another hour about the answer to that. But, you know, the way that the book, is set up. It starts with very visual things and then gets into other senses and then gets into connecting with other people. And then it does end on exactly this kind of note that you're talking about where you mentioned the, um, that was a student of mine who I give them this assignment of invent a new way to pay attention. And this, this, uh, this one student said, I think I did it wrong. I, 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 I spent a week, I bought, I got a cactus and I spent a week taking care of it. I said, yeah, that is kind of not what I had in mind, but actually there is, it's a kind of brilliant and it's kind of perfect because there is this deep core connection between what we want to attend to is what we really care about. And what we really care about is what we should be attending to. And the culture pushes against that. The culture is pushing you to pay attention to Game of Thrones, whether you care about it or not. No offense if you're a big Game of Thrones fan, right? But there, there becomes this ridiculous pressure to be up on what everybody else is up on. And that's fine and it's fun for some things, but um, it leaves people, and I guess particularly because I deal with students who are at this formative stage and they feel like, oh, if I'm paying attention to something and no one else is talking about it, I guess it's not important. And the truth is totally the opposite. The things that you are noticing that other people are overlooking those are the most important. Those are the things that make you a person. And um, the culture is never going to push that. Uh, you got to push that yourself. If you were to recommend one activity to the folks listening, what would it be? Well, my, the one, I mean, I guess that to, just to not be a hypocrite, I would recommend the one that I do the most. <laughs> and this is one, an exercise uh, called a uh, big box archaeologist. And this is how it works. It, it's drawn in part from the work of a, uh, game designer named Ian Bogost, um, who, uh, has written about, uh, trying to make everything into a game basically, and understanding how game mechanics work in the real world. And, you know, the, the, the secret to this is children is just watch how, and he talks about being at the mall and his daughter's walking really weird and he realizes that like, oh, she's doing the thing of like only step on this square, not that square, you know, and don't step on the, this kind of thing. And just like what an insight that is that kids are always, they turn everything into a game. So Bogos had this idea of like, what's the most unpleasant task that I have to do in my life? And basically, let's just say big box store. He was specifically talking about Walmart, but let's not pick on Walmart. Um, but, you know, you have to go to a big box store and especially when you have to go and I would just identify with this when you have to go to this one of those stores and you need to get three things and they're in three totally different corners of this immense space. So you're going to spend like all this time hiking through acres, it feels like, of stuff that you have no interest in. But so he tries to look for what's the weirdest or funniest or most bizarre or unlikely thing that's for sale. And 
It's fun. Uh, my most recent trip, I spotted um, Pop Tarts cereal. You know that exists. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a tiny, very doable way. So the reasons I like this one are: it's very doable. You can work it into a routine that you probably already have to deal with anyway. Um, it converts total tedium into a game that's fun. It does sharpen your noticing skills and your attention muscles. And, um, you know, it's not taking time out of your day. It's making this time better. It's better than spending that time hiking through the store, you know, stopping to check Twitter every five seconds or whatever. You're doing something as an individual and you're challenging yourself and you're having a little creative fun. Well, that feels like what so much of the book is about is, as you say, that kind of gamification, which really is a way of kind of getting back into that childlike wonder. Yeah. And I think... You know, it is, although I think a sort of fun and joyful response, I also think it's a very serious response to this attention panic moment that we're in. Um, And I do think it's important. It's not just sort of like, wouldn't it be neat if your day was spent in a different way? I do think that we lose something if we get into this habit of letting our attention be directed elsewhere. I think it makes us less creative. I think it makes us less original. And one way to get a hold of that, instead of these strategies that seem so, yeah, like become a monk (laughs) and uh, lock your phone away somewhere, which I just don't think people are going to do. I'm trying to think of ways that offer an incentive to have fun with noticing and make it part of your life again. Why do you make things? I have a two-part answer to that. I have a preface to my answer, which is that I, I actually think about this a lot, that I, th- I want to say that I think there's maybe too much emphasis on making things. <laughs> um, and a big part of what I'm getting at in the art of noticing is while I call it the beginning of creativity, I also think that noticing and attention and appreciating, say, a plant or a sound or a sunset, that you can appreciate those things and that can be its own reward. And I worry that another offshoot of this tech culture that we're in is that, well, your sunset that you just enjoyed is no good. It doesn't do you any good unless you shared it on Instagram. And maybe you even start a best sunsets on Instagram group. And maybe that leads to a book deal and then you've done something. And I, I really want to resist that pressure And I want to put in a word for just appreciating the world as it is and that being its own reward sometimes. Why I make things? I make things for the same reason that anybody who makes things makes things, which is that I can't help it. I can't shut up. I feel like I need to get my point of view out there. And um, as it happens, part of my point of view is saying that maybe that urge, that urge that motivates me a lot Even I feel like there are times when, like, I need to suppress it and stop trying to convert every idea into some kind of cultural product from an article to a website to a whatever and just enjoy it and be in the moment. Rob calls out such an important tension with that final statement. This drive to be productive that is so deeply embedded in all of us now. This feeling that everything, 
even just noticing the world around us must somehow be a means to an end. That all of our thoughts and dreams and observations must be productized in some way. And if we aren't packaging that moment up for someone else's consumption, well, was it really worth it? And this is the devil's bargain that technology asks us to make again and again. It's not about being productive. It's about looking productive. Having a lot of meetings on your shared calendar looks productive. Answering your emails swiftly looks productive to the people receiving the replies. Posting a lot of pictures of gorgeous sunsets looks like you are being productive in the weird, weird moral world of Instagram. But while we're so busy looking productive, looking like we're living our best life, real life passes us by. Because Instagram, social media, technology is an addiction like anything else. Like drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes. And the sole purpose of any addiction is to not notice things. To shut something unpleasant out. Because being present does hurt. Sometimes. But it also, at least as far as I know, is the only way to be really and truly alive. For those of you who listen regularly, you'll want to make a mental note that today's episode is the final installment of season two of this podcast. From here on out, I'll be on break for the summer with plans to return with a brand new season in the fall of 2019. That is also when my new online course, Reset, will begin accepting new students. If you haven't heard about it yet, Reset is basically like a cosmic tune-up for your workday. It's a four-week program that teaches you how to align your energy and your attention with the natural rhythms of your body, how to set clear boundaries with technology and say no, and how to build inspiring creative work into your daily routine. If you'd like to learn more about Reset and sign up to get notified when it reopens, you can do so on the website at reset-course.com. Once again, that's reset-course.com to get details on my new online course, Reset. As always, much appreciation to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for creating our theme song, Calm Revelation. If this episode sparked some new ideas for you, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a handy link to do so right down there in the show notes. Once again, thanks for listening to season two of Hurry Slowly. And remember to take your time. Thank you.